The scripture reading tonight is from the book of Joshua. I'll be reading chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. Now Jericho was shut up from within and from without because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given into your hand Jericho with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city and the men of war going round the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, the priests blowing the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests, and he said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And as Joshua had commanded, the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or let your voice be heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to compass the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, passed on, blowing the trumpets continually. And the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. On the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she had the messengers that we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted thing and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people raised a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Then they utterly destroyed all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and asses, with the edge of the sword. The word of the Lord.
sure that I agree with Kurt Vonnegut when he says that the capacity for unquestioning faith is absolutely vile. But I'm pretty sure that a questioning faith has more hopeful potential. So on Passion Sunday, as we begin Holy Week, when we consider that faithful people, Peter and rabbis and all forms of Roman law abiders, participate in the murder of Jesus, it seems apropos to question unquestioning faith. Faithful people participating in violence, unfortunately, is not exactly uncommon. Sometimes faith in a god or a nation or a particular set of beliefs seems to inspire violence, obviously. Like in the story that James just read, strangely a very popular children's Bible lesson. So the Lord told Joshua to get all the people lined up, and seven priests with seven trumpets made of seven ram's horns were to lead the people as they marched around Jericho for six days, carrying the ark that cradled the tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain. March silently without saying a word. And then on the seventh day, they go around seven times, and on the seventh time, Joshua commands, commands the people, okay, everybody now you can shout, and they all blow their trumpets, and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. Some children's curriculum comes with instructions for making ram's horns out of empty paper towel rolls. And also a fun activity suggestion for the children. March quietly, perfectly quietly, around in circles six times. And then on the seventh time, when the teacher says you can, you can yell out and you can blow through your paper towel rolls, and then you can just imagine the walls come tumbling down. Maybe it was that whole thing about not talking until God told you you could that the Sunday school teachers really latched onto. But the moral of the story, as I remember it from Sunday school, was sort of this. Whatever God asks, it may seem a little picky, not four, not two, but seven times. It may seem like a lot to ask, marching, marching, round and round, perfectly silently. It may seem futile or strange what God asks. But if you do it exactly how God asks, you will be victorious. And maybe there will even be a miracle. A miracle. Like the utter destruction of an entire city. A miracle like death to everything that breathes inside it, women, children, oxen, sheep, put to death by the edge of the sword, and there'll be some silver and gold, some nice vessels scattered in the midst of the ruin, and you should gather those valuable things from the midst of the bloodied bodies for the Lord's treasury. Hmm. Ick. The whole marching around the walls, being quiet thing, may have some appeal in, the, appeal in the midst of the writers of children's curriculum. But what, I wonder, what sort of mechanism, what sort of indoctrination 
or patriotic-like fervor, or what sort of unquestioning belief would keep them or the children from imagining what's going on inside the city? Imagining the child trapped inside the walls of Jericho, sitting on her bed, looking out her window at this silent marching, these strange people performing some strange ritual, carrying their cultic, cultic objects silently, the little girl's family shut up inside the walls, no one goes out, no one goes in, sleeping curled up together for six terrifying nights. And then on the seventh day, they wake up to this horrible yelling, and then this child's world collapses. Her mother reaches for her, but she can do nothing as she watches the soldier slit her mother's throat with a sword. Her family, her friends, her goats, her cat, massacred, annihilated. What great Sunday school material. It seems like a horrible story. Barbaric. But then, on the other hand, through the wonders of YouTube, you can watch Mahalia Jackson on the Nat King Cole show, singing Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho, a song composed by slaves of this empire. And the way she sings and the walls come tumbling down, hallelujah, I swear you'll feel like, yeah, maybe, by the power of God or the power of song, every oppressed Repressed, donned, trodden, enslaved, persecuted, abused, homeless, hopeless, captive people will rise up and blow their trumpets and march and sing. And the plantation owners, the slave-driving powers that be, the structures that ensure that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, the structures that protect powerful corporations but not young black men or teenage girls will come tumbling down. Hallelujah. And all the people will be set free. Jericho is the first city to fall in the book of Joshua, which is all about the conquest of Canaan. The Israelites are freed from slavery. God leaves them, leads them out of their misery, promising this beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. And then God helps them, so the story goes, to get the land away from the people who have been living there. It's a narrative that inspired the slaves in this country. It's a narrative that gave birth to a whole lot of beautiful gospel songs. On the other hand, the God in this story pretty much tells the Israelites to completely exterminate everything in Canaan that breathes. It's really pretty hard to read Joshua straightforward and not feel pretty queasy about it. It's hard to look at the city of Jericho today and not feel a lot queasy about this story. Jericho is located in the West Bank. It's under the Israeli military's occup occupation since 1967. The Israelis control the water, the mail, the electricity, the roads, the airports, the borders. 
Palestinians can't get out or in without permission from Israeli's military. A lot of Palestinians believe that the goal of the Israelis is to exterminate them. Maybe they're familiar with the story in Joshua 6. Some people say that the West Bank is more like an open-air prison than a viable home. Chronic water shortages, extreme poverty, and almost surreally, they are encircled by a 26-foot-high concrete wall, a security wall meant to contain the Palestinians. So the walls aren't tumbling down for the Palestinians. They're going up, 100 meters thick in some places. Most even conservative biblical scholars these days would agree that the story that the way it's told in Joshua never happened. There were actually no conquerors of Canaan who swooped in and swiftly annihilated the indigenous population. The archaeological evidence overwhelmingly contradicts this presentation of the facts. And it seems a little like, well, what a relief. The Israelites weren't maybe actually involved in the wholesale slaughter of the native inhabitants of Canaan. They didn't actually go through the land murdering women and children, didn't actually impale people on stakes for public display in town after town, as told in the book of Joshua. Well, thank God. But what would make a people even tell a story like the conquest of Canaan? To what end? By what impulse? The book of Joshua was probably composed hundreds of years after the event supposedly happened, written at the time when the Israelite cities had been destroyed, when they had been driven off their land by the enormous empire of Babylon, written when they were exiles, when they were living like refugees. And I don't know, but maybe when you're sitting around a fire in a refugee camp, without a home or any resources, when you're hungry and tired and vulnerable, and some boy exhausted from hauling water for the empire says, Dad, tell me a story about our people. And maybe Dad's feeling a little weak, unempowered, and he sees the light going out of the eyes of his child, and so he doesn't say, well, son, there's not much of a story to tell, really. We're just like everyone else, full of all the same brokenness and grandiosity and distorted self-esteem and fears and appetites and shame. We're often weak and fearful and occasionally very confident, but we're mean sometimes, kind, you know, unremarkable, really. We're just caught up in the same historical and political and social forces that everyone always has been and always will be. We're like everyone else. There's really not much of a story to tell, sorry, really other than that. But no, instead he says, well, son, there was a time when we were like heroes. And he says this as he moves the log and the fire 
with his worn-out shoe. There was a time when our people had come out of slavery and crossed the River Jordan into the Promised Land, our home, and all the people of that land saw us crossing over, and they were faint-hearted because of us. And he wipes the smudge of dirt from his child's eyes. We'd just been stumbling along through the wilderness. We had been slaves, but suddenly everywhere we went, people's hearts melted in fear of us. And our fame was in all the land. Sometimes the stories of the heroics in Joshua, the exaggeration of the glory, the grandiosity is so puffed up and so over the top that you wonder if it's meant actually to be parody. The Israelites' first encounter with a human being in the promised land is a prostitute, Rahab. Two spies go to Jericho, um, and then Rahab hides them from the king when he comes looking around. But when he leaves, they finally talk to her. And she says, is the first communication with someone from the land, she says, as soon as we heard of you, our hearts melted. As soon as we heard of you, There was no courage left in any man because of you. And I tell you, there was no courage left in any man because of you. Truly, all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Who tells this sort of story? Well, maybe not quite everybody, but a lot of people tell stories in ways that make themselves sound bigger and better, and way more significant than they are. Maybe especially when they're feeling a little insecure or afraid. I mean, I don't know, but have you ever known anybody to maybe, or maybe a nation, or maybe a politician, tell a story that makes things seem a little one-sided or less messy or grander, a little more shocking and awesome than the facts? I think people do this in part because it makes a good story, in part because there's something about a story of triumph, a story with a leader who can rise up and defeat the enemy, something about that sort of story that gets people riled up, a spark in their eyes. Yes, we can. But the most interesting or wild or unbelievable, beautiful thing about the Bible is that that sort of story stands for about 10 minutes before cracks start breaking through the surface. The thing about reading the canon is whatever's in front of you at the moment, your peripheral vision can't help but catch the flashes coming in from all sides. Man, the story of Israel is fraught. There's these stories of glory that are told, But then they're undermined by counter-narratives that expose over and over and over fragility, corruption, or irrelevance. I love that in a book. I like that in the story of a nation, quite a bit more than America the Beautiful. In Judges, which comes right after Joshua, The other side of the grand and the powerful heroic tale is exposed. 
by much more intimate stories of vulnerable and messed up humanity. Samson and Delilah. The big, strong man is seduced and bound by a woman who cuts his hair so he loses all his power. There's a story of the Levite whose concubine is raped by his fellow Israelites. In Judges, the people of Israel fight among themselves. The people of Israel commit atrocities against each other. Almost immediately after the supposed conquest, it's like a thousand other fragments shoot in to puncture those tales of glory. In Leviticus, there's a warning from God. Don't behave abominably, lest the land vomit you out when you defile it, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. The book of Kings reports that once they were in the promised land, each generation of Israel was worse than the next. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. All the language of how Israel destroyed the Canaanites is used against the people themselves in the prophets. It's like for a nanosecond, there are heroes and conquerors. And then the story goes into this sort of slow-mo vomiting out. The people of Israel defile and pollute and they mess up and they fail to love and they do not take care of the poor. Their story may start out with the triumphant conquering, but it ends up with the land vomiting them out into Babylon. I am just amazed that as a story of a nation, it displays this remarkable capacity to be self-critical. The Hebrew scripture continually revises and unravels itself. And the seeds of the unraveling seem to be planted even in what seem like the most straightforward stories. In the story of Jericho, for example, coveting a home, coveting, the Israelites kill all the people of the city, kill, and steal its treasures, steal. And how strange that in the center of that, the instructions are repeated over and over to go around and round carrying the ark, which contains the tablets with the commandments that begin, do not kill, do not steal, do not covet your neighbor's home. The story of the fall of Jericho may seem like a straightforward story about righteous violence, but there's actually enormous tension just under the surface, cradled in the ark that the conquerors carry. Just before the story, which seems to be all about God's on your side or God's on Joshua's side, just before Joshua sets the men of war circling the city, Joshua lifts up his eyes and sees a man, the angel of the Lord. And Joshua says to the angel of the Lord, are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? And the angel of the Lord says, no. 
It seems like a strange way to answer that question. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. And Joshua fell on his face and asked the angel, what does the Lord bid his servant do? And the angel says, take off your shoes. Maybe it's not by the power of God, by heroic conquering that every captive will be set free, but by something much more vulnerable than that, something broken and shed, not glory solidified, but power undone. I think we should pay attention to the counsel of the cross as we make our way through Holy Week.